Hello everyone and welcome to the Rethink Freedom podcast with Freedom United, a podcast dissecting modern slavery around the world with guests on the cutting edge of activism. My name is Miriam Kamali and on this episode I speak to experts to explore forced organ harvesting and organ trafficking, horrific crimes that are not often associated with contemporary forms of slavery. I'm so pleased to be joined by Susie Hughes, Executive Director of the International Coalition to End Transplant Abuse in China, Tamara Barnett, former Director of Human Trafficking Foundation, Lord Philip Hunt of King's Heath, who sits in the UK House of Lords and has championed legislation against organ trafficking, and Dr Travis Stammers, Associate Professor and Director of the Centre of Bioethics and Emerging Technologies at St Mary's University. To get us started, Tamara, drawing on your experience in the anti-trafficking sector, perhaps you can give us an overview of what forced organ harvesting and organ trafficking are and how they relate to each other. Thank you, everyone. Um, So actually, at the end of last year, I made an impassioned plea um, to our international group on human trafficking. Um, I made a plea to look at organ trafficking in China, where there is wide-scale government-organized organ abuse taking place. And afterwards, a couple of people actually came up to me from our sector and said they would really support this work, but the charities won't be able to help. It was also clear that many key universities relied on Chinese students or even had university bases in China and and just didn't want to touch it at all. That's why I first want to thank Freedom United for taking the mantle and really leading this fight in our sector. So thank you. So human trafficking is described as the movement of a person from one place to another for the purposes of exploitation. And one day slavery is described as traffickers and slave masters using whatever means they have at their disposal to coerce, deceive and force individuals into a life of abuse, servitude and or inhumane treatment. The taking of organs from vulnerable individuals is very clearly trafficking and one day slavery, no matter where it is. Whether it is a woman being brought over to the UK from India to marry so that her organs can be technically donated to her counterfeit husband or refugees from Africa trying to get to Europe from Egypt who are lied to by smugglers, told their journey can be accelerated by donating an organ or two. Or a homeless man in Romania, falsely promised money in return for a kidney and unbeknownst to him, fatal health problems that will kill him. Or even where the government approved type exists, as in China, where the Falun Gong practitioners have had their organs removed without even superficial consent, having been imprisoned for their religious beliefs while Wago women have their hair removed right at this moment in so-called re-education camps that they are being forcibly housed in. There is no doubt this is slavery. So it was a sadness that I don't see our anti-slavery sector always being loud enough on this issue. And I think it will take time, just as it took time for the anti-slavery sector to recognize male victims and for the UK to recognize British victims. When the UN was creating the original anti-trafficking Palermo protocol, one country wanted it to make it definitionally impossible for victims to be male. And I recall eight years ago being told by someone who was seen as a leading national expert in human trafficking that the trafficking of British homeless men was just a rumour, something that we now have tangible proof happens on a huge scale across the British Isles. With organ trafficking in China, it can feel very far away, but it isn't. You can go to China now and get an organ. You can go to the Body World show in London now, where it is understood that prisoners' bodies have been sold to the exhibition by the Chinese government. I was asked to touch on the drivers of modern-day slavery. And it's often a case of poverty or discrimination, such as discrimination around gender that acts as a driver. 
We see that in Egypt, in Romania, India, Turkey, with organ trafficking. But in China, the drivers are purely based on ethnicity and faith. Uh, so the driver there is effectively world indifference. Like the Uyghurs in Falun Gong, 80 years ago, my own grandfather was a slave in a concentration camp. The Red Cross at the time looked away. I just hope we don't ourselves all repeat the same mistakes again. Thank you, Tamara, for that useful insight. And as you mentioned, the issues of forced organ harvesting and organ trafficking are gathering traction in the anti-trafficking space um, and is being understood within the framework of contemporary forms of slavery. With this in mind, um, Dr. Travis Stammers, drawing on your expertise and academic background, can you outline for us a bit more about how organ trafficking occurs from your perspective around the world and why there is such a high demand for illegal organs? Um, I think the demand for um, organs worldwide is a, a testament to transplantation being, in a way, a victim of um, its own success. And the increasing effects of, um, well, you take, for example, the recent um, COVID pandemic, unfortunately, mean that the demand for organs is going to go up because, along with things that we've had for ages like diabetes, the effects of, of smoking, excess alcohol intake, and so on, all contributing towards organ failure, COVID also does <clears throat> exactly the same. Uh, thing. And so um, there are always going to be um, uh, pressures to uh, find organs. And as tomorrow has already um, illustrated, unfortunately, in a global community, particularly within organ trafficking, where you have groups of criminals, essentially, who are uh, trafficking people and have no concern at all if they will die in the back of a a van, you can understand if they have no regard for human life at all, they certainly will not uh, have any qualms about uh, promising people money uh, to, to acquire their, their organs. And this does very much, um, it is a one-way traffic mostly from uh, the poor to the rich. And even in a country like um, Iran, which is the only country in the world that um, uh, doesn't have a, a waiting list for organs, you see the same pattern, that, that mostly it is the poor whose organs end up in, in richer people. So it's a very complicated problem. And I think that one of the major issues that I certainly want to highlight today is that as Tamara was saying, um, in the past, um, people trafficking was um, completely denied, didn't happen, was a myth. I think we still have the same issue with organ donation. And part of the problem with that, of course, is that unlike with people trafficking, you need doctors. Now, I am a, a qualified medic. I practiced for uh, almost 30 years. And unfortunately, it is the collusion of the medical profession, which is um, the, the absolute gateway that allows this to happen. And although organ trafficking is internationally um, illegal, unfortunately, transplant tourism is not. And the difference is that it is perfectly legal for someone to leave the UK or Japan to travel to China in a uh, private hospital there to have an organ uh, uh, transplanted, the provenance of which 
is almost certainly that it uh, <laughs> harvest and then to enter their home country and have no action taken against them at all. And uh, although the number of officially recorded, uh, when I last looked at the figures, um, crimes that had come to the National Crime Agency in connection with organ trafficking uh, was only six. I think A, this illustrates that it is happening, and B, how difficult um, it is to uh, detect. And it's not until certainly those organizations um, like the uh, um, ones that are involved in organizing this seminar today push organ trafficking mm -hmm. up the agenda as part and parcel of this as, as a crime, that I think pressure can be put upon all the parties who are involved in it, and particularly um, doctors whom people will naturally think, you know, that they are they're people who are here for our healing and our benefit. Um, but doctors are no more immune to the pressures of government, to the pressures of commercial vested interests and uh, still remain human. And uh, of course, indirectly, these doctors are uh, responsible for uh, the deaths of innocent people uh, to supply the organs that they are transplanting. Thank you, Trevor. That's really helpful to understand a bit more about how organ trafficking is facilitated and particularly you, know, you touch on the point about transplant tourism, which we will come to a bit more later on. Susie, your organisation, ETAC, is doing crucial work tackling forced organ harvesting in the context of China, where it is a state sanctioned project occurring on a large scale. We have seen an increased awareness around the issue of forced organ harvesting since the Independent China Tribunal released its final judgment on forced organ harvesting in China earlier this year. Can you speak a little bit to your organization's role in pursuing this legal opinion, why the Independent China Tribunal was set up and why its findings are so significant? Yeah, thanks Miriam. Uh, look, this issue sat in a space of controversy for a very long time, and it's not difficult to understand why. Um, it's a, a shocking situation where people who are incarcerated in vast numbers, uh, blood test and organ scanned in detention, so we're talking about chest x-rays and ultrasounds, so they're forced into these uh, medical examinations. Um, and as um, other speakers tonight have mentioned, it's happening on a, a vast scale and it has been happening for a very long time. So since sort of 1999. So that I suppose coupled with the fact that there are a lot of uh, partnerships with China um, in, in many different sort of sectors really has made it a, an issue that's been hard to get traction on. Um, it's people really find it hard to believe it could possibly be happening. So our organisation, which is an organisation of advocates, and we have a lot of experts, we have a, um, you know, a lot of human rights lawyers and, and different uh, professionals from, from many different backgrounds, um, basically decided that we wanted to get an independent legal opinion on all of the evidence. So we approached Sir Geoffrey Nice QC, and Sir Geoffrey Nice was lead prosecutor of Slobodan Milosevic at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. Uh, he's an expert in crimes of mass atrocity and, and very highly respected and, and regarded person. So originally we asked him for an, a legal opinion himself and in, in his words he sort of said, you know, 
Um, if I do a, a legal opinion, it'll probably just sit on the shelf. So, you know, maybe you should consider initiating a people's tribunal. And um, at that point, we didn't really understand the significance of a people's tribunal or, or really you know, didn't really even know much about what a people's tribunal was. Um, so after speaking with him and looking into other tribunals, so, you know, one of the first uh, People's Tribunals was the Russell Tribunal, uh, we realised that it really was something that could help. And the reason why is because with a situation like this, and particularly because it's China, uh, there's, you know, governments and international bodies are, are finding it very difficult to act um, and, and certain sectors are actually turning a blind eye. So it's, it's not a situation where it's going to be a formal court that's going to be looking at it just yet. So having a people's tribunal allowed us to have a situation that, that held the integrity of a formal court, because obviously you need someone like Sir Geoffrey to be holding that, um, but um, you know, obviously doesn't have uh, the ability to prosecute. But it was an, a robust assessment of all of the evidence. So there was five days of public hearings in London. The tribunal looked at uh, official Chinese uh, documents. They spoke to experts. They spoke to fact witnesses. So we had Uyghurs there who have, um, you know, testified to having a, a black hood over the head and and their organs scanned. And of course, Falun Gong practitioners as well, which is the, the Buddhist Qigong practice you mentioned earlier. Um, and over the course of 12 months, they looked at all of this evidence. So I guess, you know, they've done the work for everybody. They've, they've you know, really um, looked at it. And, and so Jeffrey put a, a, a sort of a safeguard in place. And that was that there was counsel to the tribunal and counsel to the tribunal was Hamid Savvy. And he was counsel to the Iran tribunal. And he sat as sort of like a shield, I suppose you could say, between us and we're obviously an advocacy body and the tribunal to ensure that the assessment of the evidence um, was completely separate from the people who had urged them to take on that role. Um, so over, you know, the course of 12 months, they assessed the evidence and, and as you probably know, they, they came out with a judgment that yes, forced organ harvesting of prisoners of conscience has been happening for a significant number of years to a significant number of victims and the people are killed in the process of the organs being removed. And um, basically it's, it's, it's been a game changer. You know, um, now we are having a lot of discussions uh, with different dignitaries uh, from different governments around the world, from the UN, obviously organizations like Freedom United and it's really uh, created this incredible focus and, and I guess a bridge for people to be able to grapple with this vast amount of evidence around the forced organ harvesting and the many different lines of evidence. It's all nightly, nicely sort of neatly packaged into this, this China tribunal judgment now. So yeah, it's, it's made a huge difference, Miriam. Thank you. Thank you, Susie. Um, yeah, it's really great to hear just how big of an impact that work is having today. Um, thank you as well, Tra Tamara and Trevor, for providing your thoughtful analyses of forced organ harvesting and organ trafficking. What we've seen is, you know, the horrific nature and severity of these crimes makes it actually quite difficult to believe that only a small handful of countries have passed legislation to combat these crimes. 
in terms of what the UK can be doing to play its part in tackling forced organ harvesting and organ trafficking, Lord Hunt, welcome. I'd like to just pass over to you now to explain for our viewers why is it important for the UK to be addressing this issue and can you give us a bit of an overview of the work you're doing to encourage legislative change? Okay, well thank you very much for inviting me to join you for this um, important conference this morning. Um, I took through uh, a bill in the House of Lords a couple of uh, towards the end of 2019 to actually change the law on organ donation in the UK. This was to change to a system of presumed consent. So we now assume that an adult has given consent to their organ being transplanted when the appropriate circumstances arise, unless they register not to do so. We hope that as a result of that, there will be more organ transplants and many more lives saved. But because we are now presuming that adults have given consent, it's absolutely essential that the system is seen to be 100% integrity-wise and transparency-wise. And that goes nationally, of course, for the UK, but also internationally. And so I became, as a result of that, very, very interested in the serious issues in China with the enforced um, transplant of organs from um, prisoners, from prisoners of conscience, from minorities who are being persecuted. And with other colleagues in the House of Lords, we've been working to put pressure on the UK government to take a more vigorous stand and actually to, try, to start to see if we can change the law so that people at least from the UK and companies cannot actually take part in these terrible activities. Great, thank you Lord Hunt for all the important work you're doing to push for legislative change in the UK and for outlining how individual countries are able to take action against forced organ harvesting. Uh, for our viewers, you can also show your support by adding your name to the campaign to stop forced organ harvesting. So you would just need to visit freedomunited.org forward slash advocate forward slash forced dash organ dash harvesting and we'll also drop the link into the chat. So beyond legislation, effectively tackling any form of modern day slavery requires a holistic approach and an understanding of the wider structural issues that create vulnerability to situations of modern slavery. With this in mind, Tamara, I'd like to pass over to you now. Um, I know that you touched a little bit on this earlier, but what are some of the conditions that make certain groups more vulnerable to being targeted by organ traffickers? So, I mean, one of the sort of traditional drivers, I think, is often poverty, because as often there is a promise, um, in most cases outside of sort of government examples like China, um, of sort of financial payment. Um, so generally, there's some sort of poverty element that drives an individual to take this risk. Um, there might often be maybe a lack of awareness around around the risks. So as well as poverty, there might be sort of um, lack of education. There might be people with potentially who are, are, are sort of vulnerable anyway as adults. They might might, might be have learning difficulties, etc. So, so they might be even more e easily taken advantage of. Um, but we know certainly these sort of big drivers are just poverty and desperation, and that can be caused by wars, that can be caused by gender issues, so people escaping violent families and relationships. Um, 
people escaping um, families because of sexuality. Um, so it's a range of things in most of the world. It sort of it tends to be a vulnerability that the trafficker then exploits, and definitely poverty and desperation, um, and certain elements around discrimination can play a role in, in how that happens. Absolutely. Um, and Trevor, I just wanted to pass over to you to see if you had anything else to add and with regards to what fundamental changes we need to see if organ trafficking and forced organ harvesting are to be tackled in a sustainable way. I think one of the things that became very evident um, to me when I was um, researching for um, a, a chapter that I uh, wrote for a, a book last year for uh, um, Oxford University Press was I, I called that chapter a dark convergence, trafficking, tourism, and trading. And not only was that sort of triad present, I was also amazed that um, not only were uh, doctors that I've also alluded to, and some uh, kidney doctors and uh, uh, renal surgeons, um, supporting the idea, certainly of um, uh, trading and, and tourism, or uh, uh, seeming to do so. Um, but also, there are many economists who are uh, writing about the importance of uh, purchasing organs, and um, philosophers too. And uh, in particular, I think that uh, Patricia um, uh, um, uh, Janet Radcliffe Richards' uh, book, um, uh, Careless Thought Cast Lives, which is rather an ironic title, I think. Uh, um, she has the extraordinary statements in there that, you know, the, the, the people who are poor would not sell their organs if they didn't think they could benefit from it. And there's no such thing as an irresistible offer. Um, so whilst people are making claims in popular uh, paperbacks of, uh, of this nature, I think that um, it, it, it gives a justification for the idea that it is perfectly acceptable for body parts to be marketed. So it's against that backdrop that the more specific crime of obviously, um, in some cases, killing people to order for their uh, organs is, is at the far end of a much wider spectrum. So I think it makes it very difficult. And I just want to illustrate, to me, one of the most powerful pieces of evidence that this is happening, aside from the um, People's um, uh, Tribunal, which I attended and uh, heard some of those um, uh, stories from uh, people who had escaped from these uh, camps and so on. Uh, earlier this year in the Global Times, a Chinese newspaper, there was a report where the Chinese government were in one way, understandably, parading the triumph of a successful double lung transplant uh, in a uh, Chinese citizen who got COVID in the January of that year. And the report says that the donor um, was a non-local um, uh, donor and the lungs had been sped to uh, the hospital where the transplant was carried out seven hours by high-speed train. Now, the speed with which they found two lungs that were compatible with this uh, person who'd gone down with COVID in, in January, they, they must have found those so quickly that many people were raising questions about how this could be done unless the person had been killed to order in order to supply them, because you would usually wait many months or years 
to find a suitable transplant by conventional means. So there is a great deal that needs to be uh, exposed here. And sadly, I had an experience with this, I'll, I'll just close, just recently of being on a panel um, in a country uh, at a, a very well-known medical school where we were talking about organ trading. And sadly, the leading surgeon from that country had recently been out to China doing training and so on. And I, I understand the camaraderie between doctors. I could feel him freeze when I confessed my uh, link with uh, ETAC. And he started to say, well, things are getting better and, and so on. And this defensiveness in front of the evidence that uh, you know, people are being um, killed to order to supply organs, I, I, there is a huge uphill battle. And it's no wonder that governments around the world would rather turn their back on it. Um, and I'm very grateful that we... Uh, have uh, Lord Hunt here as a, a counterexample of, mm -hmm. uh, of someone who wants to do something about it. Thank you, Trevor. And I'd like to thank all of our panelists for sharing your expertise with us and shedding light on some of the causes and solutions of forced organ harvesting and organ trafficking through a modern slavery perspective. We're now going to move on to our audience Q&A section. We have loads of questions. Thank you all so much for participating. So our first question, we are going to direct this one to Lord Hunt. There's no talk at all of modern slavery in electoral times in my country, Argentina. What kind of changes need to happen, in your opinion, to have more legislators raise the topic and pass laws around it? Hello, it's a very good question. Um, a few years ago, we were not debating the issue of um, organ transplants in China. Over the last five to 10 years, um, a group of committed people, um, including the organization that we're now speaking with, um, and many others, badgered politicians, encouraged them to raise issues, and gradually we built up a momentum. Um, and at last, I feel we're on the knocking on the door of government to actually agree that Parliament will have the ability to change the law and to change attitudes. But it has taken time, but it started with some a very small group of committed campaigners persuading people like me that this was important. And I think whichever country you're in, uh, whichever political system you have, in the end, one has to campaign, get it to people's attention, and then politicians, I believe, will pick this up. Uh, and the more internationally that we can do together, the more we can share our experience, the more countries that actually pass laws uh, in relation to what is happening, the more momentum we'll create. Great. Thank you so much, Lord Hunt. Moving on to our next question. Is there a role for bans or blocking imports of organs from particular countries or regions to reduce demand? Perhaps Travis Summers or Susie Hughes could touch on this. 
I'm going to let um, uh, Susie um, uh, take the detail of that, but I would say that, of course, where you have uh, criminal gangs and people wanting to uh, participate in this trade, whether there is a, a ban or not, uh, stopping it and enforcing it is, uh, is a very, very difficult uh, job. Thanks, Trevor. Um, yeah, look, I guess it depends on, on you know, what, whether the question's talking about um, stopping citizens of their own country from, you know, traveling to somewhere like China or, or another country to receive an organ. Um, at this point in time, the, the technology, you know, there, there are new technologies, there's one called ECMO, which actually keeps organs longer um, in this sort of um, box. I mean, I'm terrible at explaining these sorts of uh, medical devices, but it's a medical device and, and the organ can, can be kept longer. Um, this sort of thing is quite concerning because even, you know, the situation we have with the Uyghurs, how they're sort of, you know, uh, situated in one part of the country, then this sort of uh, medical technology could actually potentially um, and, and may actually be happening now, uh, transferring uh, organs around the country. Um, if that um, technology develops further, then I suppose in the future there's going to be the possibility of those organs actually being able to be sent to another country um, and, and to be implanted, you know. And I think with um, in regards to this question, instead of, you know, just looking at, at what's happening now and what we need to do now, which are obviously putting in, into place some... Um, laws around transplant tourism so that you know our own country in our own countries we're responsible um, and you know we stop the the trade coming from our own countries we need to also look a little bit ahead because we sort of always seem to be on the back foot where we're jumping uh, to try and create laws once there's a huge problem whereas we know these technologies for example uh, are developing we really should be uh, looking at uh, what we can do to make sure that um, we're not importing any body tissue. And I know this is something that's happening um, in the UK, which perhaps Lord Hunt could speak more about, you know, um, that there's no blood plasma products coming from other countries, there's no organs, or, you know, we talked uh, before, I think it was Tamara mentioned the bodies exhibits, so, you know, plastinated bodies. So I really do think it's sort of legislation across the board and really looking carefully at where we can improve the legislation that we already have and where we really do need to be starting to look into what problems could be happening in the near future and, and creating new legislations to deal with that. Great, thank you, Susie. Our next question, are there organs being harvested illegally within the UK? And is there a real chance of an organ by force being used in a local operation in the UK? How would we know? Would you like me to uh, start on, on, on that one? Um, I, I, I have a, um, I'm in contact with a, a doctoral student who is um, looking to investigate this. And I have sent to uh, Freedom United a couple of slides which will be available for uh, viewers, one of which relates to a um, newspaper article in 2015 where a 12-year-old boy um, was um, being uh, was in the UK and the police were involved in, in that case. And it was thought that he was here for uh, the purposes of his organs being removed. And I would just say, of course, that child slavery um, 
the trafficking of organs in teenagers, they're particularly valuable because they are um, mature organs of an appropriate size and all other things being equal. They, they will kind of last for years. And I mean, I, I, I just never thought I would hear myself, you know, sort of talking about body parts as if you were replacing a catalytic converter on, 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 on a car. It's just absolutely extraordinary. So I think it is happening here. And, you know, anecdotes are dangerous because people can make them up, but uh, at a local medical dinner, Last last year, um, in the sort of camaraderie after these events, uh, going out to the car park, a consultant, retired consultant nephrologist, was telling me that a colleague of his had seen in outpatients um, uh, someone recently whose organ uh, transplant he felt had uh, been uh, of uh, either a tourism uh, situation and. Um, he wasn't going to explore that um, uh, uh, any further. But I think some kind of legislation that if doctors suspect that they are either as physicians or dealing post-operatively with a complication of a trafficked organ or uh, one that was acquired um, illegally, that some means of notification and so on uh, becomes mandatory because the tendency is for professionals always to cover their back, not get involved with anything that, you know, uh, may be out of the ordinary just in case. That That's not good enough when uh, children are being brought over here to have their kidneys taken out and possibly die as a result. Thank you, Dr. Charles Damas, for your response. Lord Hunt, I just wanted to ask you a bit more about the organ tourism and cadavers on display bill. And if you could explain a little bit about mm. what the impact of that bill would be if it were to be passed into law and why it's needed. Well, it's very relevant to the contribution we've just heard from Trevor, because one of the this is a separate piece of legislation that I'm also working on. Uh, and one of the things we want to do is place a requirement on doctors and other people working in the health service to report incidents, as he mentioned, where it may be suspected that uh, a recipient of an organ, it came through organ tourism. If you think about it, if someone from the UK went to China, paid to have a, uh, an organ, they will come back and they will need follow-up treatment and they will turn to hospitals in the UK. So I hope, if I can persuade Parliament to give me time, that at some point we might legislate to do just as Trevor suggests we should do. I think I should also say that the, the official system of organ transplants, I believe, is totally above board. Uh, we have some really dedicated staff committed to organ transplants. And I do want to draw a distinction between illegal activity or very disreputable activity and the mainstream, where I believe we do have a very good system. Yeah, well, I absolutely support that. And the incidents that, uh, the few incidents I'm aware of are largely related in the private sector where it is uh, much more difficult to um, be absolutely sure what's what's going on all the time. I think the more we can raise this, the more we can pass laws 
the more people come aware. And really, in the end of the day, I think it should be absolutely unacceptable from anyone in the UK to go abroad uh, in these circumstances uh, where uh, an organ is uh, um, accepted without that person giving consent. And, I, you know, I'm very clear that we ought to legislate for that. Thank you, Lord Hunt and Dr. Stanners. So perhaps Tamara, you could touch on the next question. What happens to the victims and who buys the organs? Mm. So in terms of what happens to the victims, I mean, for example, there was, um, there was recently a documentary looking at organ trafficking in Egypt. And there certainly are people who were selling their organs and seemed to survive um, and sometimes even get some of the money. But we, we know that in many cases, I know that the, the case that became quite famous, I believe, in, um, in Europe, where it was, I think, a, maybe it was a, a teenager um, who, 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 who sort of donated, donated organs for money um, in sort of a legal criminal network. And, I, and in his case, he died. And that's how the case became sort of quite well known. And I think we know that in many cases, this is not done by people not done by caring do no harm type of doctors unfortunately so we, we know anyway these these can have an effect on impact health even in the best case circumstances but unfortunately there's a lot of evidence actually it sort of affects people very badly and people though asking for i mean i think it's important to realize that there must be people going abroad to get um organs who don't necessarily know about trafficking i think that it, um i think i think there is an ignorance um I'm aware that I think the the Israel's been one of the countries that's sort of done quite a lot of work around tackling organ trafficking. I think it came from a doctor being aware that his client um, um, was trying to try to get an organ and struggling struggling in Israel, and then found out that there was an option to get one very quickly. I think in China. Um, so I think that that person was just desperate. And when you when you when you your child needs an organ, I can understand why you'd be like looking all over and and possibly turning a blind eye to the, the questions that might come. Up in your mind, like where where did this organ come from? Um, in the same way that we buy cheap goods in the UK um, that sort of don't make sense in terms of if it must have taken several hours to make a, a, some, a piece of clothing and yet it costs five pounds. Um, so I think I think there's an element of all people turning a blind eye to potential trafficking and slavery. So I don't necessarily think the people who receive these organs should be treated necessarily um, as criminals, but I think certainly by making it illegal, then we sort of highlight the point. And I think that's why what Lord Hunt's doing is so important, because actually if people are aware uh, that actually this is a crime, then they, then they would, then most normal people would stop doing it. Um, and I think um, that that's the only way to sort of get this message through really to people, because otherwise they just don't think, and in desperate circumstances, people make desperate decisions. Thank you, Tamara, for that really useful insight. Thinking internationally and on the international stage, and, you know, organization like the United Nations, how has the UN addressed organ trafficking, if at all? And what role do bodies like the UN have in driving change and accountability? Perhaps Susie, you can speak to this. Uh, thanks, Miriam. Now, I might have to defer to Tamara or someone else in regards to other types of organ trafficking um, in regards to the UN, because I'm, I'm not sure our organisation really does focus quite specifically on China. 
Um, the issue of forced organ harvesting in China was brought to the UN's attention many years ago, and I think it was actually Amnesty International. Uh, I remember there was a, um, a speech that was given on the floor of the Human Rights Council. Um, look, it's uh, a difficult situation, as we all are probably aware that uh, China has quite a strong influence, uh, particularly in the Human Rights Council, um, which, you know, and, and a number of sort of countries that, that uh, tend to support whatever it is that that China uh, decides or, or, you know, recommends. So it's, it's, it feels like there needs to be a significant shift in, in the way things work. Um, having said that, we have had some really positive uh, discussions and conversations since the China Tribunal. And once again, this is sort of demonstrating um, how important it is that, that Sir Jeffrey and the other members of the Tribunal have analysed this evidence because uh, now they have, uh, I, I guess, this, this judgment, which includes, you know, a phenomenal number of, of different um, testimonies and, and, a, and a huge appendices of, of reports that, of course, they still have to delve into, but at least it's, it's uh, the reasoning behind why they believe um, it is happening and has been happening is laid out very clearly in the judgment. Uh, one thing that we are really urging for, and a number of organisations are supporting that as well, is a commission of inquiry into forced organ harvesting in China, um, specifically. And uh, a commission of inquiry could be initiated by uh, the Human Rights Council. It could come through the General Assembly. It can come through the, the special procedures or the the, um, the High Commissioner's Office. So. These sorts of things can happen. There are steps that need to happen before that, probably. And one of the biggest ones is speaking out. And that's what we're, we're really hoping for. And that's, you know, what we're starting to see from governments around the world now. And, uh, you know, different people are really speaking out about this. And, and what we're hoping is that the UN will speak out as well. And then we can start looking at what sort of formal investigation needs to happen into this horrendous situation. Next, our guests answer some of the Freedom United community's questions on forced organ harvesting and organ trafficking. So, Dr. Travis Dammers, we have a question here that I think you might be best placed to respond to. So, who is creating the demand for human organs and do black market hospitals exist? In this question, there's no, um, they, they don't specify in a specific country context. So, perhaps you can just give an overview of um, I, this might look like generally. Okay, I, th I think it does vary from uh, from place to place, depending on the uh, system of medicine. I think it would be fair to say that the the sheer figures and volumes of transplants uh, involved in China almost certainly indicates that there is sadly a nationwide practice of. Um, using organs that uh, are of doubtful provenance in transplantation units in every city in uh, China, probably. The, uh, it's such an industrial uh, scale, sadly. Um, the, the market for it, of course, is, is the fact that um, people will die without um, 
the organ supplies and people will do anything, including not asking questions about where the organ came from, uh, either as recipients or those transplanting it, if the market um, is there. And uh, clearly it is there. And uh, it, it sounds such an antithetical thing to the principle of medicine. And transplantation has certainly been probably the greatest medical advance, I think, of the late 20th century. And uh, it, it, it's just such an irony that um, trust in it uh, is being undermined. And one of the big fears that I have is that uh, even a system like our own, which I agree currently is very, very robust. You only need just one incident as, as happened in Japan, as has happened in Singapore, to undermine public trust in the newspapers. And then even the legitimate setup becomes tarnished by that too. So this could turn very, very sour indeed if uh, we allow um, uh, this kind of activity to uh, continue. Thank you, Dr. Summers. I don't know, could I come in on that? Yes, of course. Uh, I just agree very much with it. I mean, the problem we have is there is a shortage of organs for transplant in many countries. And that's why, you know, I started, I came in on this because I wanted to encourage people in the UK to increase donations. And even with the change in law to presume consent, at the end of the day, and relatives will still have a strong say in whether an organ should be transplanted. And if the person, uh, who, the potential don donor, has not told their relatives of their intention, even with the change in the law, uh, a transplant may not take place. And so the two things go together. We need a huge campaign to encourage people to actually say to people, yes, I do agree to my organs being transplanted. And the more we can increase the number of, of organs available, the less there'll be a black market. And I think the integrity of the official system therefore becomes absolutely critical to this. And that's why those of us who are involved in the official systems, one way or another, need to be very, very strong about China and any other country which allows these terrible practices to be undertaken. It's, it's crucially important that people make known, and even young people, all my students, when I lecture on donation, I say to them, or, well, last year I said to them, sign up on the, on the register and tell your relatives that you've done so. And of course, it's difficult because for uh, deceased donation, it means thinking about one's own mortality, but we, we need to be realistic. One day we will all die and being prepared to donate our organs after death costs nothing except foresight and the courage to tell your relatives uh, what, what you would like, and uh, uh, I mean, I certainly made that clear to uh, my uh, family, children, and uh, and so on. And uh, if if the one outcome from this is every person who listens to this video and uh, is 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 watching live deals with that uh, uh, straight after the uh, uh, webinar, then there'll be some good progress there too.
Thank you, Trevor. So we just received another question, and I think Trevor, this one would be directed to you as well. Do you know if organ harvesting and illegal transplants are addressed in medical schools at all? Education and awareness on the part of the next generation of surgeons is vital given their essential role. I, I can't speak for um, the, whole, the whole country because um, the teaching of um, medical ethics is, is growing in, in this uh, country. But I can certainly say that um, within the past year in a university other than my own, I was invited to guest lecture um, uh, at a summer school for, in fact, um, a group of Chinese students. And I did contact the organizer and said, I'd be very, very happy to do that. Um, but you do need to know that these are my affiliations and are you happy for me to speak freely about these things. And, and it was quite extraordinary. I, uh, I mean, I was perhaps more temperate than I've been in this webinar, but those Chinese students really engaged extraordinarily well. Now, I don't know whether they had a minder who's, you know, sort of put me on a list and so on, but I can say that the vast majority if those medical students were representational of, of those being trained in China, um, they will know that uh, trust in transplantation is incredibly important. Um, and I think you know, most young doctors do enter, and, and it's not just doctors, nurses, um, operating assistants and so on, with a genuine desire to do the very best for their patients. As we, we've seen through COVID and clapping the NHS is, is clapping a service that deserves it. We must make sure that we don't uh, lose that trust. Thank you, Trevor. So we have touched quite a lot on China and forced organ harvesting in the context of China. Tamara, I know that you took part in the BBC Panorama documentary that looked at the issue of organ trafficking in Egypt. And we have a question here. How can anti-slavery agencies help in raising awareness of this modern day slavery issue in Africa? Um, I mean, it's always a challenge with awareness raising because what we find with human trafficking is there's a lot of money spent in our sector trying to raise awareness. Um, and what, what happens is often the people who make the decisions that make them fall into exploitation, whether it's organ harvesting, labor trafficking, sexual exploitation, um, there tends to be a view that it won't go wrong for me. And the reason why they're making those decisions is because they're already at that point where things are desperate. So, so I think you can do awareness raising and, and certainly sort of work in these countries that we know, you know, people are coming from into Egypt from, you know, Eritrea and, and Sudan and, um, and, and sort of raise awareness of, of the risks around organ trafficking, the fact that you're unlikely to get the money you've been promised, the health risks. Um, and it, I, th I think it will have some impact um, because I think often there is complete ignorance around this issue, including, you know, among amongst people in the West as well. So I think a certain amount of education can work. But I do think one needs to remember that people who make these choices, if you can call them that, um, are a point of such desperation that often, um, often, you know, that, you know, people aren't, people aren't stupid, that they know, you know, they know there's a risk and they make that choice, they weigh things up and things are so desperate where they're trying to get away from, for example, that they make that decision. So I think awareness raising 
um, is quite a challenge. I think in the UK, I saw actually there's someone, one of the questions was as they work as a GP um, and that, you know, what to do with people who want to bring their relatives. I think it's raising awareness. Like, for example, we've heard anecdotally, I think I touched on it in my talk, that there are cases of families, for example, bringing over someone and pretend and, and sort of having a kind of fake wife or husband. Um, so because obviously our, our system is very secure, um, but you are allowed to donate if you're a family member, et cetera. So, so is it using kind of using that system? So the person in, in the Q&A who says they're a GP, I, I, I would assess that very, very carefully. And I think it's just awareness of realizing that this happens um, amongst the medical professional staff in the UK can, could make a real difference. Um, but I think in terms of types we're talking about in places like um, in Egypt and in India, I think it's, we'll need to understand that actually the drivers are poverty, desperation, war, gender discrimination, corruption, and it's tackling those things that will actually have more impact than sort of spending huge amounts on awareness campaigns. It's actually the, the drivers we need to be dealing with rather than trying to sort of create sticking classes along the journey. Yeah, thanks, Maren. Lord Hunt, we have a question here for you. Given UK relations with China and trade negotiations, how optimistic do you consider outcomes for pushing forward any legislation and enforcement? That is a very good question, and it's a question being asked by many parliamentarians uh, at the moment. The uh, debate about China's investment, for instance, in UK infrastructure over the last 12 months has shown an increasing concern uh, about human rights issues alongside security issues, and I think actually creates circumstances where there may well be more sympathy for the kind of things we're trying to do. Uh, one bill going through the House of Lords at the moment is the trade bill. And I'm supporting an amendment which would exclude companies explicit in atrocities suffered by the Uyghur Muslims from gaining access to UK's telecommunications infrastructure. Now, the government is not very keen on this, but a lot of their MPs actually are concerned and, you know, I am hopeful that the more pressure we put on, the more bits of legislation that we seek to influence, it will lead to an eventual change in government policy in relation to human rights issues. It's a very big issue. The UK is looking for a massive billion pound investment in its infrastructure. China is clearly uh, a country which has invested very much uh, in the UK in the last few years. So we should not underestimate some of the tension there is between ethical human rights-based foreign policy and the financial issues for a country. But my sense is more and more people in the UK are prepared to stand up, even at an economic consequence. Thank you, Lord Hunt, that is encouraging. We just have one final question before we come to a close. And uh, this one is for Susie. As a student, I would like to know what can young people do to raise awareness and help stop live forced organ harvesting in China? Thank you. It's a, a really great question to end on actually. And um, look, one of the most important things is to talk about it. And it's interesting because people sort of, you know, expect that there's got to be something really sort of um, time consuming or difficult that they need to do. But actually talking about this issue is, is what is going to help people 
realize that it's happening. Um, it's it's one of those issues that's it's a really horrible issue. Any kind of organ trafficking is, and a lot of people don't want to talk about it. It's you know all oh, that issue, and they want to change the topic. And I think one of the biggest things is to you know, for this particular student or anyone that's a student to talk to their lecturers about it, you know, talk to their other students about it. There's lots of different um, student groups within universities that they could, uh, you know, there can be, um, I suppose, experts that can come and speak about the issue. There's a couple of really fantastic documentaries and and really helping with that, that uh, you know, Tamara made a point recently about raising awareness and, and that's the best thing that you can do. Um, of course, then the next step is also to uh, lobby for legislation change and, and to support things that are happening on that level as well. I mean, we do have uh, a student movement at ETAC, so people can contact us at endtransplantabuse.org. Uh, and also I hadn't mentioned the website, but chinatribunal.com is, is where you can, you know, read about the judgment and even watch the testimonies of, of the people there that spoke. Um, to the tribunal about their experiences. So, yeah, I hope that helps. Thank you to our excellent speakers for joining this discussion on how forced organ harvesting and organ trafficking occur and what progress we're seeing globally to address these crimes. Over 34,000 in the Freedom United community are urgently calling on governments to adopt legislation to tackle these crimes at the international level. We must keep up the pressure. Join the campaign today at freedomunited.org forward slash advocate. Thanks everyone and stay tuned for the next episode.